1: You've heard this guy's name a hundred times, but what do you actually know about George Floyd, other than the color of his skin? I'll be honest, I didn't know anything more than that before I set out to write this episode. Here's what I learned. Floyd was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina, in 1973. His parents split when he was two, and he went to live with his mother in a public housing complex in Houston's Third Ward. It's one of the poorest neighborhoods around. If you're from the area, you'd just say he lived in the bricks, deep inside the tray. They called him Perry when he was little, then Big Floyd when he hit six feet in middle school. He was co-captain of the basketball team at Yates High School, playing power forward. Floyd was also a tight end for the football team in 1992, when they went all the way to the Texas State Championships. Thanks to sports, he was the first of his siblings to go to college. He dropped out in 1995, though, and returned to Houston, where he got a job customizing cars. He started rapping under the name Big Floyd in a group called Screwed Up Click. Floyd made life difficult for himself shortly after this. He went to jail eight times in the span of eight years. Charges included drug possession, theft, and trespass. Then, in 2007, he was charged with aggravated robbery after he pushed a gun into a woman's stomach and forced his way into her apartment. He was sentenced to five years in prison and was paroled in 2013. In 2014, Floyd tried to start fresh by moving to Minneapolis, went into rehab, got a job at a homeless shelter. Later, he got a commercial driver's license and drove truck. But his sobriety was brittle and he went back to using again. In 2019, He got a gig working security at the El Nuevo Rodeo Club. Then he lost his job when COVID hit. And in April, he caught COVID himself. A month later, on May 25, 2020, at about 8 p.m., Floyd bought a pack of smokes at Cup Foods, a grocery store in the Powderhorn Park neighborhood of Minneapolis. An employee at the store believed that the $20 bill Floyd used to pay for cigarettes was counterfeit, Store employees followed Floyd out to his car and demanded that he return the smokes. He refused, so they called police. Two officers responded and approached Floyd's car. One of the cops pulled Floyd out of his car and handcuffed him. Around this time, bystanders began filming the arrest on their cell phones. The officers sat Floyd on the sidewalk against the wall. They said he was acting erratic and asked Floyd if he was on any drugs. Floyd said, nah, He was just scared. At 8.13, the cops walked Floyd across the street to their cruiser. On the way, Floyd fell to the ground. Floyd told them he was not resisting, but that he was short of breath because he was feeling anxious and, you know, recovering from COVID. It's here when he begins to say, I can't breathe. Enter Officer Derek Chauvin, who arrived with the fourth officer in the counterfeit $20 bill arrest at 8.17 p.m. Chauvin assumed command of the situation. Now Floyd is being a little more persistent, shouting, I can't fucking breathe. A struggle ensues as Chauvin pulls Floyd across the back seat of his cruiser. Floyd is yanked out of the car where he falls to the ground still handcuffed. At this moment, as Floyd lays with his chest on the ground, struggling for air, Chauvin put his knee on Floyd's neck. Another officer applies pressure on Floyd's torso. A third holds his leg still. Floyd repeats that he can't breathe, and now he starts asking for his mother. I'm about to die, Floyd says. Chauvin tells him to relax. Please, he says. The knee in my neck, I can't breathe. Now, I know photographs can be taken out of context, and we weren't there, but I mean, when I look at that picture of Chauvin kneeling on this handcuffed man's neck, what I see in Chauvin's eyes is not fear or concern it's annoyance exasperation a look that says ugh here we go again another day another guy trying to steal some cigarettes and a bunch of looky-loos causing me problems more than anything else I think it was that look that really did him in anyway turns out Floyd wasn't lying he really couldn't breathe they took him away in an ambulance and he was pronounced dead at the hospital an hour later a guy goes out for a pack of smokes and accidentally kickstarts an entire summer of civil unrest. It's like an episode of Twilight Zone written by Richard Price. And this episode ends with a rallying cry, Defund the police. But what does that mean? What does it mean to defund the police? Is the goal to get rid of police entirely? Wouldn't that lead to anarchy? Also, who came up with the idea to have police in the first place? What are they really supposed to be doing for us, the people who pay their salaries? Let's learn some shit. This is the Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner.
2: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.
1: Police officers have been around for all of recorded time. As long as there have been hoodlums, there's been the fuzz. Ancient Egypt had police like 5,000 years ago. They even kind of looked the same. Like, they wandered around with these wooden sticks to hit thieves with when they tried to steal stuff from the market. They even had canine units. And sometimes, they also used baboons. And, uh, I can't think of anything more frightening than running between the pyramids in the dark, being chased by angry baboons. The ancient Egyptian police acted kind of like Judge Dredd in that they also acted as prosecutors and they could impose punishment. And there were also police forces who protected merchants when they traveled and protected the slaves as they worked. As far as we can tell though, there was not much in the way of detectives back then. Investigations were usually left up to the citizens. In ancient Greece, slaves were put to work, patrolling the cities as rudimentary policemen. They did a lot of crowd control stuff, like the Hells Angels did at concerts in the 70s. And it wasn't just the old world that had the popo. The Aztec Empire also had officers who could perform arrests. Can we take a moment to consider how fundamental police are in the story of humanity? It says something about us, doesn't it? If enough humans get together... Some lunkhead's going to start problems, and we need someone to deal with him. What are the buildings we build first? Churches, bars, jails. The modern police force was devised by a guy named Robert Peel. This was in London in the early 1800s. Peel was prime minister of the United Kingdom back then, and London was rife with crime. Rife, I say. And so Peel formed the Metropolitan Police Force at Scotland Yard. He hired 1,000 officers, which people called Bobbies, after Robert Peel himself, and crime in London dropped dramatically. Peel wrote the first official, Instructions to Police Officers. It was important to Peel that his officers only policed by consent. They served the people. His ideas for what policing should be were summarized in what's become known as the Peelian Principles, a kind of outline for an ethical police force. In Peel's vision... Police officers were viewed merely as citizens in uniform. Peel believed that the measure of whether police were effective is not the number of arrests, but the lack of crime. How fucking cool is that? His police force were beholden to the public. And here's what he says about use of force. Use physical force only when the exercise of persuasion, advice, and warning is to be found insufficient. Peel's vision boils down to these words. The police are the public and the public are the police, the police being only members of the public who are paid to give full-time attention to duties which are incumbent on every citizen in the interests of community welfare and existence. So how did we go from Peel's ideal police force to Officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck and ignoring his police for help while he slowly died in plain sight of three other officers? Story time, folks. I need to tell you about how I got a morning talk show host out of a bit of a pickle a few years ago. In Cleveland, we have this guy who goes by the name Rover. Since 2003, he's hosted the most popular morning talk show in town. It's called Rover's Morning Glory. And while it may have started out as a poor man's Howard Stern, it has morphed into a soap opera of interesting characters with goofy names, including his co-hosts Doogie, Chocolate Charlie... Dieter, and this guy Jeffrey who's clearly on the spectrum and a bit of a pathological liar who hooks up with groupies and still you can't help but root for the guy. It's a great show. Anyway, by 2013, Rover and his crew were quite popular and Rover himself had made enough money to buy a boat and park it at the Old River Yacht Club on Whiskey Island, which was once a bootlegger stopover from Canada during Prohibition. Today, it's where the rich people party. It was the night of the 4th of July and Rover and Charlie were celebrating on the boat by shooting fireworks into the lake. It was late, like 3.30 a.m. An owner of a boat parked nearby came over then to ask Rover to knock it off. This man was a tank, six foot four, 350 pounds. He yelled at Rover. Rover got into his face. Later, the big guy said that Rover shoved him, instigating physical contact. So the guy fought back in self-defense, knocking Rover out. What Rover didn't know was that the big guy was Stephen Kynas, an off-duty Cleveland cop, vice president of the Cleveland's Police Patrolman's Association, and mixed martial arts coach. After the fight, Kynas called in to his friends at the 2nd District, and Rover was charged with felonious assault, inducing panic, criminal damaging, and resisting arrest. He faced upwards of eight years in prison. Much of what was reported in the press came from the police spokeswoman, Jennifer Chach. Rover was made out to be this out of control entitled celebrity who tried to fight a police officer and deserved a prison sentence. But something about the story made my spidey senses tingle. Not the least of which was how in the hell could a Cleveland police officer afford a $110,000 yacht and why had Kindness named his boat Anger Managed? I hadn't worked as a reporter in a couple years, but I was compelled to poke around a bit. One thing I discovered was that the spokeswoman, Jennifer Chach, was engaged to a man named Tom Rakovic, who worked for Kindness's private security company, Watchmen. And Tom's brother was a guy named Matt, who had a history of harassing Rover and doing weird shit like leaving nudie mags inside the radio station and shining green lasers at the talk show host through the windows. The deeper I looked, the more curious I became. Everyone in town knew Rover, but who was Steve Kynas? I did some digging at the old courthouse and found some alarming details in divorce paperwork. His ex described Kynas as a controlling husband who demanded she turn over her paychecks to him. She believed he tracked her cell phone so he knew where she was at all times. She said kindness was a compulsive liar. Steve would just lie, she said. Just things that he would say and exaggerate, and I didn't know that in the beginning. In 2010, she left with their two kids after he assaulted her, she said. He grabbed me by the neck and shoved me against the wall. After that, she alleged that he pulled her into their bedroom and forced her to perform oral sex. It wasn't the first time he'd raped her, she told the court. He was twice as tall and three times her weight. When Steve gets enraged, he just looks like a different person. He looks like a demon, she said. His eyes look different. Kindness was charged with domestic violence. He admitted to pushing her into the bedroom, but denied that he raped her. After the divorce, Kynes continued to rise in the ranks of the Cleveland Police Department. He and his old partner created a company called Watchmen, which assigned Cleveland police officers to security gigs on their days off. The officers worked private security in their public uniforms and were paid $26 an hour. For each hour worked, Kainis got a cut of it. You know who holds real power inside the police department? The guy who assigns cushy overtime jobs. That's who. I decided to speak to Kainis. I wanted to see if the story he told me about that night on Whiskey Island would hold up. So I invited him out for a drink in Fairlawn, not far from my house. I got there a half hour early and spoke to the bartender. I told him this really big guy was going to come in and that anything he ordered should go on my tab. I told him I would be ordering gin and tonics and I would pay for top shelf, but I asked him to actually fill my glass with soda water. And in that way, I outdrank a giant. Kindness was a few drinks in when he replayed his story for me. He said the fireworks woke up his kids and so we went over to Rover's boat where there were about 15 people still partying. I told them it was keeping us awake and scaring my kids, he said. Then Rover starts in, fuck your kids, fuck your sleep. After that, Kynis walked over and knocked a lighter out of a guy's hand before he could light another rocket. He was dressed in swim trunks. Who the hell are you? Someone asked. I'm the fucking police, that's who I am, he said. He claimed he never hit Rover. Kynis said that the day after the incident he got a call from Howard Stern's office. They offered me $50,000 if I'd come on the show and talk about what had happened, he said. But nobody really believed that story. Stern's producers are not in the habit of paying for stories, and Stern was later listed as a witness by Rover's attorneys to deny the claim. During our talk, Kynis also told me that his initial interview with police after the fight had been erased. But totally by accident, he said. Rover gave a little comment himself. I was the victim of a vicious, unprovoked assault that night, he said. I was knocked unconscious by kindness. I said I was going to file a complaint. The situation I find myself in now is retribution for that, plain and simple. I put everything I'd found into an article for Scene, where I used to work. It was published shortly before Rover's trial. After publication... Prosecutors dismissed all felony charges and Rover eventually pleaded to misdemeanors. He got probation and he's still on the air in Cleveland and other markets across the country. For me, Officer Steve Kynas has always represented the worst that modern-day police departments can create. Not a Robert Peel constable who serves at the pleasure of the public and works to stop crime from ever happening, but a self-serving, dangerous man with a short fuse who thinks of citizens as a lower class of humans and uses their power for revenge. He had no hesitation to send someone to prison for eight years for an altercation that could have been avoided if he'd spoken kindly and diffused the situation, if he'd acted like one of Peel's policemen. Our trust and faith in police relies on a philosophical ideal known as a social contract, and it was thought up by a dandy of a man named Jean-Jacques Cousteau, whose other passion was deep sea diving with turtles. Wait, that's that's not right. The guy's name was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau was born in 1712 in Geneva, that's Switzerland. He was the son of a watchmaker, which if you know anything about watches in the Swiss, is just short of royalty. Now, life way back then was quite a bit different than it is today. For example, let's take a look at Rousseau's mother in a very Freudian tangent. Rousseau's mother, Suzanne, was raised by her uncle after her father got into legal trouble for having a mistress. A few years later, in 1695, Suzanne was arrested for disguising herself as a peasant so she could attend a street theater performance by a well-known actor of the time, who she wanted to hook up with. She was a 17th century groupie. Afterward, she was ordered to never contact this man again. When she was 31, which is like 60 years old adjusted for inflation, Suzanne married Isaac Rousseau. Here's the weird bit. Isaac's sister had married Suzanne's brother eight years before. For your information, that makes Rousseau's cousin's genetic siblings, but I digress. Suzanne died nine days after giving birth to Jean-Jacques, and he was raised hearing a fictional account of his family, told as a fairy tale about two marriages and how they'd united two families. When John Jacques was 13, he got an apprenticeship with an engraver who abused him, so he ran away at 15 and met up with a 29-year-old noblewoman. Word is they kept the relationship professional until he was 20, and then he became the third in her sexual thruple with another man. It's the kind of stuff you don't get on PBS, folks. Suffice to say, Russo's life was large, and it needs its own steamy soap opera podcast to tell it properly. But let's skip to his big ideas, okay? Rousseau was first a novelist and then a philosopher who had progressive views on modern society. He was mostly inspired by the philosophers Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Here's what Rousseau thought about human nature in general. Quote, The first man who, having fenced in a piece of land, said, This is mine, and found people naive enough to believe him, that man was the true founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. In 1762, Rousseau published a book called The Social Contract that turned a lot of people on. What is the social contract? It's the theory that every individual has consented to surrender some of their freedoms and to submit to the authority of their government in exchange for its protection and guidance. Maybe that seems like kind of a duh statement, but nobody had ever really spelled it out like that before. We agreed to follow the rules of the government we're in in exchange for its protection. That social contract is what allowed us to come out of the caves and form tribes and then city-states and then countries. Every government is beholden to their citizens who granted them the power they enjoy. Sometimes that gets lost and we forget who's really in charge here. And then we revolt and chop their heads off until they settle down. Rousseau reminded us of the contract our ancestors signed for us centuries ago to serve and protect. That's Rousseau's idea of a good government. That's also the motto of the L.A. Police Department, and still was when four L.A. cops beat up Rodney King in 1991. The police are the strong men for the government, and the government is meant to protect us. So what happens when police turn on its citizens? when they no longer serve the common man. Well, it's quite simple. We stop paying them because they're not doing their job. Okay, so what do we really mean when we say defund the police? Depends on who you talk to. There are some extremists who want to abolish police entirely. Case in point, the collective known as For a World Without Police. This is a loose-knit group of protesters who believe that police violence and exploitation cannot end by simply passing reforms. They want to tear it all down and start over. On their website, their mission states, we know that police abolition is only possible as part of a broader revolutionary project to abolish the state in its entirety, along with capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy. They believe that police departments across the United States have been corrupted beyond repair. What was once a force for peace and crime prevention has become a blue mob who patrol our schools, hospitals, and public transit. You see armed guards in police uniform at Walmart and movie theaters. They've become protectors of capitalism, they say, not protectors of people. You can't reform a landmine, but you can dismantle it and destroy the factories that made it and dissolve the government that profits off its existence, they write. In an editorial for the New York Times, Mary Aime Caba, author of We Do This Till We Free Us, writes, There is not a single era in the United States history in which the police were not a force of violence against black people. Policing in the South emerged from slave patrols in the 17 and 1800s that caught and returned runaway slaves. In the North, the first police departments in the mid-1800s helped quash labor strikes and riots against the rich. Everywhere, they have suppressed marginalized populations to protect the status quo. So when you see a police officer pressing his knee into a black man's neck until he dies, that's the logic result of police in America. When a police officer brutalizes a black person, he's doing what he sees as his job. Abolish the police. Is that too far out for you? Yeah. I'm progressive as they come, but that's too much for me too. Part of this movement is an argument in semantics. But generally, what we mean when we say defund the police is a middle ground where cities allocate funds that would typically go to buy more tanks and guns for their local police department to social services and mental health professionals who could better deal with the majority of their calls. The cops I know complain about the amount of domestic and disorderlies they deal with on a daily basis. In America, when there's a fight at home or there's someone with a mental illness shouting obscenities on the bus... Who do we call? We call the police who show up with guns. And sometimes, sometimes that person in uniform is rightly afraid and only draws his sidearm when confronted with the possibility of bodily harm. But what if instead we had an agency of social workers on call to respond to these petty disputes? Mental health professionals and counselors who are trained to de escalate confrontation. According to a report by the Treatment Advocacy Center, People with mental health issues are 16 times more likely to be killed by the police than anyone else. Defund the police also means reallocating funds to education, in an attempt to provide a better life for future generations, a way to break out of poverty without falling into a life of crime, to turn children into engineers and teachers, instead of drug dealers and thieves. But it's a hard fucking sell. We're a reactionary species with little thought to the far future. What we see in the news are rising crime statistics and the call from prosecutors to arm the police and the need to hire more police to keep up with the growing demand to stem the crime wave. It's always easier to invest in the treatment of a symptom than to invest in the effort to eradicate the unseen disease that causes it. But check out what happened in Portugal in 2001 when they defunded their drug police. Instead of sending armed men to arrest people on minor drug charges, They gave the money to social workers and bought trucks that delivered methadone on the streets. Since then, the number of heroin users fell by 75%, and they had the lowest fatality rate from overdoses in all of Western Europe, according to a report from the New York Times. The point is, what we're trying to do in the United States doesn't work, and people are dying. So why not try another way? The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry Production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the Stay Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com, where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online, and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, wooden dice that will give an artful twist to your gaming night, and his new Talking Pints, a clever way to mix up a fresh conversation. Available now at Uncommon Goods. Until next time, remember... There's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everybody took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better.